Psalm 33. We're going to look at Psalm 33 and use this as kind of the basis for my message this morning. I think this is an important word for us today, and I hope that the Lord uh, uh, will give us clear eyes and ears to, to hear it. I invite you to stand with me as we receive this together. I must warn you, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been in the pulpit. You may or may not have noticed. I don't know about that, but but uh, because I haven't been in the pulpit, I've been working on this message for a couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, it, settle back in. It may, it may be a, a, a good long one. So anyway, but Psalm 33, I want to begin here with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The psalmist cries out, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the, fear, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. Well, this morning I, I want to share a message with you that might seem a little out of step with our age. But I want to boldly preach a message of thanksgiving, and most specifically on this July 4th weekend, to call for us as a people to give thanks to God for the blessings of living and belonging to the United States of America. You know, we live in a day and age when something like that is almost a daring and contentious statement to say, I am thankful that God has given us this great country borders on courageous. But to say that I am thankful is not to deny our nation's imperfections, nor our present day turmoil. It is not an endorsement of any political party or agenda. In fact, I could preach many messages about where our nation is falling short and continuing down a secular slide, and I have done so many times. But today, I challenge you to pray for our nation and give God thanks 
for the freedom we have, in fact, to do so. Now, some pastors are hesitant. Some pastors are hesitant to honor our country and its heritage. They fear that we're worshiping the country instead of worshiping God. And I want to point out that that can be a danger. But I would also submit to you that it's not idolatry to give God thanks for your country on July 4th, and even any more than it's idolatry to give thanks for your mother on Mother's Day. The Bible says, in everything, give thanks. We are thankful that we have been born into the kingdom by God's grace. And so, as children of that kingdom, we can be thankful for the freedoms we enjoy as part of the country he has allowed us to live in. The Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so, when God gives a good gift, we ought to be thankful. A little boy fell into a shark-infested ocean water off of a pier. His mother was understandably upset. She became desperately panicked. She cried out, and a complete stranger dove into the water, found the boy, and pulled him to safety. The mother embraced her son, and then finally came over to the man who had saved him, and she said to him, Mr., he had a hat. Now, my point with that little story is, let's not be like that this morning. In spite of all the, the good things God has bestowed on us, including our salvation, if we can't see the beauty of what God has afforded us here, in spite of all our flaws, it seems to me to be the height of ingratitude. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his inheritance. You know, one of the reasons that I love this country is because of its foundation, its founding principles. I'm thankful this morning for those founding principles which were based on a biblical worldview. They were unique and unparalleled in human history. In fact, John Adams, our second president, said this. He said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. In Psalm 27, 1, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor will labor in vain. Now, let's acknowledge, and boy, we hear this again and again in this time. Our founding fathers were not perfect men. They were products of their age and, yes, their prejudices. But they sought to see the world and shape the world through a biblical lens. And while those principles that we're going to lay out this morning were not always lived out, those spiritual principles eventually allowed us to see the grievous nature of slavery, the evils of Jim Crow, it's the principles that guide us even now to see the unfair treatment in the justice system and say, we want it to be different. It must be different. Our nation is better than that. And what calls us today to confront the haunting sin and genocide of abortion? It is these principles that will lead us there. And so we see some of the spiritual principles laid out in our very founding document, for instance, the Declaration of Independence, and I'd like us to consider that for just a moment. 
because these principles have allowed us to prosper and endure for these 200 plus years. Now, sit up for a second, wipe the cobwebs off your mind, because these men were not interested in a 280-character tweet, you know. This is not how they did things. This is not how they wrote. But how they did write, I should say, how they did write should, should cause us to think and settle in and understand. So here is the opening paragraph. The Declaration of Independence declares when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Now, what are they saying there? In other words, they're saying, we're going to explain why we're declaring independence from Great Britain. We're going to let the whole world know because we have God-given rights that are being violated. And in that course, they lay out three sound principles that I want to make sure you have in your, in your understanding this morning. The first is this, that government gets its authority from God. Government gets its authority from God. For instance, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I want you to notice right off the bat here that our forefathers acknowledge that there is a God. And he is sovereign over us. And God created every person with certain innate rights. So authority begins and ends with him. Our, our, our forefathers, our founders asserted that the king of England had usurped those rights. The king's authority was not his because it was inherited from his father. No, the king's authority came from God. The king was accountable to God ultimately. Now, of course, the founders were right. In verse 16 of Psalm 33, we read, No king is saved by the size of his army. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. In Daniel 2, it reads, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, and he sets up kings and deposes them. Every king gets his authority from God in heaven. Now, here's a second principle that's outlined in this document. Government is accountable to the people. Passage goes on to say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So the idea is after God comes people, after people comes government, and only by the people's consent do government officials rule. Now, I want you to realize that we just kind of take this for granted today, but how revolutionary that idea was when the founders put this document into place. It was an upside-down view of the world, but our forefathers determined that we would be a government not ruled by kings, but by law. Laws made 
by the people's representatives. We'd be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We would elect the most capable among us to represent us and to write, interpret, and enforce the law. Now, I want you to stop right there and, and realize something. Then, If this is a people, a, a government of the people, that says something about the character of the people and what kind of character we have to have. I remind you in verse 8 of this passage, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. What kind of people do we need for a just and right government? John Adams, again, the second president, one of our founding fathers, said this, Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So again, you begin to see a danger here. What happens if the people aren't moral? What happens if the people are not aligned with God? What happens if they do not see themselves in, 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 uh, under the authority of God? Things fall apart very, very quickly. The third principle that I have you note this morning in the declaration is this. Government is capable of horrendous evil and must be restrained. It goes on to say that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them that shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, when we begin to think about what God wants for society, we know in verse 5 it says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. God wants righteousness and justice, the psalmist says, is the foundation of his throne. The earth is full of his unfailing love. That's the kingdom mindset. Now, in the next few sentences in the declaration, it says that nobody should overthrow the government lightly because there is no perfect government. But the founders argued, we've suffered enough under this unreasonable despot, and when people suffer a, quote, train of abuses, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. That's the declaration. Now, this is what I want you to note here. You see, our founding fathers believed in the sin nature of men. They saw, for instance, that power had corrupted King George. They believed that government is not to be trusted with unlimited power. But at the same time, they acknowledged the danger of pure democracy because people could be selfish or people could be ignorant. Way back in the 18th century, a man named Alexander Fraser Titler Wuhusi, I don't know if I'm saying the last name right, but, uh, but he made this foreboding observation. He said democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the people discover that they can vote themselves the largesse of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate 
promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy to be followed by a dictatorship. Now, are those forebodings? As we move toward socialism, I hear Margaret Thatcher's words echo in my mind. The problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. But the founding fathers understood this and they tried to mitigate it by establishing states' rights, the electoral college. They said, we're going to have representatives who can work to be informed and try to seek to do what's best for all. J. Vernon McGee, the old preacher, once said, sometimes majority opinion just means you've got a lot of fools in one place. So a few years after the Declaration of Independence, they met to form a, a new government, the Constitutional Convention, where they came up with the Constitutional Republic, where they put together a series of checks and balances, a devices that were, were meant to stop tyranny in its tracks and promote general order and justice and opportunity for the pursuit of happiness for everyone. And so they established the Bill of Rights, the Ten Amendments added to guarantee certain freedoms, including the freedom of religion. Now, I believe because of those founding principles and a desire to become a shining city to the rest of the world on a hill of grace, that, 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 that God has blessed the United States. And I think we've experienced that blessing. It, it, it's part of our heritage that our motto is in God we trust. That's not by accident. That's the way we saw ourselves. That's why in our Pledge of Allegiance we state one nation under God. It is God that brings us together. The motto of the state of Ohio is a quote from Jesus himself. With God, all things are possible. Now, for many, that was not some empty sentimentality. But for generations of Americans, that is the way we saw ourselves. God promised, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is why I feel burdened this morning. You and I are ultimately responsible for our nation because this is a government of the people you are the government the people listening to me online you have a responsibility to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you and enable it to be passed to the next generation listen we're going to be held accountable for the character of the people we vote for the policies we endorse the legacy of faith we leave behind. Now, as I think about that, I also am encouraged because I think, Lord, you know, I am so grateful. And that is because time and time again, this nation has experienced what some call providential favor. Now again, America has never been a perfect nation. And boy, we live in a day and age when scars have been exposed and wounds are real 
and we want to be sensitive to those. But this was a nation intent to be built to honor God. And I believe as a result of that, that God has kept his promise to bless this nation, bless the nation whose God is the Lord. The concluding sentence of the Declaration of Independence was this, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. They assumed, they encountered, they desired God's protection. Michael Medved, who's an Orthodox Jew and author, wrote a book that I picked up recently. It was called The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. And in it, he points out a series of incredible events. He calls them miracles in our history that should not be dismissed as luck or coincidence. And I could go through many of these, but let me just give you one that he points out. For instance, he talks about George Washington. As you know, George Washington was enlisted as the uh, general of the Revolutionary Army, the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Washington later would confide to his aide, Joseph Reed, that he never would have accepted that command if he had understood how undisciplined the American men were, how a ragtag group they were, how perilous their position really was. He later added, quote, if we prevail, it will only be because we've involved the, invention, or the intervention of a higher power. He said, I shall most religiously believe, if we prevail, that the finger of providence is in it to blind the eyes of our enemies. In other words, the only way this works, if God himself intervenes and keeps the enemy from seeing us. Now, I want you to remember that quote. Because just several months later into the war, Washington had 9,000 troops trying to defend New York City. But he got trapped. The, the, the most magnificent, powerful army in the world, the, most, uh, the, the military force of Great Britain, was there as well. Had 20,000 troops. Their entire navy was there. They were ready to attack Washington's ragtag group. The Continental Army was trapped in the east, on, on one side of the East River. It was a mile across. British ships were in the harbor ready to sail up the river. Two ships, just two of them, had 72 cannons that would end any hope of escape. The revolution, by any measure, would have ended right there if George Washington had lost. But it just so happened that a fierce hurricane-force wind began to blow before the British attack. The ships could not sail up the harbor, and so General Howe decided to delay his attack. Washington saw the chance for his men to get to the other side of the East River, survive, maybe fight another day. And so that night, under the cover of the darkness, many men crossed, but many didn't just wasn't enough time. So when dawn broke, Washington knew that when the British saw what they were doing, that his forces would be split and in horrible trouble. But it just so happened that when the wind died down, a dense fog settled in the area. Dawn broke, one soldier said, you could not see six feet in front of your face. And strangely, the river became as smooth as glass 
And they were able, under this window of fog, to get every soldier across. One Connecticut soldier said that he took 11 trips across the river that night, but strangely, on the other side of the river, there was no fog at all. They could easily disembark, and then they'd turn around and come back and pick up another group. Not one soldier was killed. David McCullough, I've read many of his books, he wrote of the incident, incredibly, yet again, circumstances, fate, luck, providence, the hand of God, as would be often said, intervened. Now I wonder how the press in that day covered the story. Well, the New England Chronicle, among others, designated Washington's maneuver as, quote, a masterpiece and a sign that providence favored us. I wonder what the press would say today. In George Washington's first inaugural address, he said these words, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they've advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have distinguished, been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Now, there are many, many other stories, I'm sure, that can be told, not coincidences, but God incidences. I think about Lincoln becoming president. What an unlikely person to take the nation as leader during such a crisis as the Civil War, a time of tragedy and, I believe, judgment. But the victory at Gettysburg, which led to Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, would end slavery. I think about the invasion of Normandy in World War II, where the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, offered a prayer for the nation over the radio he led the entire country in prayer, stating, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day has set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true, give strength to their arms, stoutness in their hearts. And then he said, Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. It's amazing to me, <laughs> when I read this quote, I, 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 it astounded me. You know, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, probably the most liberal justice we've ever had on the Supreme Court, changed so much in our society. This is what he wrote in 1954. Justice Earl Warren said, I believe that no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of our Savior have from the beginning been our guiding geniuses. Now here we are. And this is the point of my message this morning. Here we are, what, 75 years after World War II? I think we're once again in desperate need. Our nation is horribly divided right now. 
There is so much incivility, anger, tweeting, and social media. And some of you ought to be ashamed of yourselves for what you post. We're not doing this right. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. What's more, I, I, am, I am troubled. Listen, we, we, we need to have sensitivity to the wounds that have been exposed. And we ought to listen and we ought to learn. And as Dave and boy Rich have done such a great job, I wanted you to hear their messages last, these last couple of weeks because they, had, they did a, such a wonderful job talking about a culture of honor, about dealing with our blind spots. We need to keep that, and we need to keep that in balance, but I am so concerned as I see what is happening in the current excesses of revising and reshaping history. When I see the absurdity of Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, the former president of Princeton University, no longer apparently warrants his name on a building of Princeton University. When I see there are calls to remove the Star-Spangled Banner as, as, the, uh, uh, as the anthem of our nation with John Lennon's Imagine. When I hear about calls that Mount Rushmore is a disgrace. We have a problem, and it goes so very deep. George Orwell, in his book, 1984, many of you read that in high school. He described the authoritarianism as the party of one view produced its history. And this is how he described it. He said, every book has been rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Is that a reflection of what is happening? Listen, we're entering into a political campaign season, <laughs> and some are saying it's going to be the nastiest we've ever seen. If you're like me, I almost dread it. And I've heard some Christian leaders that I respect and I love indicate that our current chaos is an indication that God is now finished with America. Because for the last 50 years in our pride, we turned our back on him and rejected him. And so we're going it alone. And yes, here we are. And the truth is we've got to acknowledge that God said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. He also said in Psalm 9, verse 17, the wicked will be cast into hell and all nations that forget God. The same God said that. So some will say, we're finished. But then I read Psalm 33. And I read this passage and it says, we wait in hope for the Lord. 
He's our help and our shield. In him, my heart's rejoice. We trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. You see, I'm not ready to give up hope just yet. Remember the story of the Israelites when they were about to, to when they were headed toward the promised land and they got trapped? The Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other. And you remember what happened to them? They panicked. They went into to Moses and they said, Moses, we're finished. We're done. But God told Moses, you tell the people to stand firm and wait and see what I will do. You remember what happened? That night, a fierce wind began to blow, and by morning, the Red Sea had been parted, and they walked across on dry land. There is a solution to America's problem. And by the way, it's not to vote this way or that. It's not to write a letter. It's not to go out on the street and protest. You can do those things if you want, but that is not the solution to America's problem. Our only hope is right now to stand firm and trust God that a wind of revival will once again blow across this land for him to work in a miraculous With a firm reliance, they said, on divine protection, we pledge our lives, our lives, our, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. God can do it again. Do you know he sent two great awakenings to our nation? Do you think he might want to do a third? I hope so. Because we have a God who said this. He promised, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I'm thankful this morning that the winds of God's spirit can blow again. I hope. I'm not going to give up hope. I'm going to keep praying, and I hope you keep praying, and you keep trusting in him. Will you pray with me? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, we come to you right now because our nation is in peril. We have been ensnared by our own transgressions, Forgive us, Lord, our ungratefulness and our blindness to see the blessings we have. Give us eyes to see, Lord, and hearts to be sensitive to those who are hurting. But you said that a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And now look at us. We see division. We see incivility. We see anger and rage. Lord, may we not feed that, but may we overcome evil with good. And so, Lord, we pray this, that we would stand firm, and would you once again work a miracle, a mighty wind, maybe a mighty fog, something to humble us and heal us and unite us. Maybe, Lord, it is this pandemic, I don't know, 
but that in the near future, Lord, we pray that we will be able to say with assurance, this is one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. In the strong name of our Savior, we pray.